Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. This is Alex, George and Phil are here. Um, by here, we obviously mean in our own homes. We couldn't possibly come anywhere near each other. Um, we all suspect each other is infected. Uh, this is a Alpha Bunga Bunga reading club, and you're listening to this because you're one of the, our special friends, uh, one of our patrons who chips in a little bit more to listen to episodes like this. So thank you very much for your support, as usual. Um, greatly appreciated. So today's book, uh, we are talking about The Light That Failed, A Reckoning. It's by Ivan Krastev, a Bulgarian scholar, and Stephen Holmes, an American scholar. Um, and it basically asks the question about why the West, uh, after winning the Cold War, lost its political balance, and especially about why the sheen was lost from liberal democracy, why in Eastern Europe, in Russia, even in China, uh, and even indeed in the US, why uh, liberal democracy no longer holds the appeal that it once did. Uh, before that, guys, how are we holding up in quarantine? Um, share any quarant- important quarantine experiences maybe that our uh, patrons can can benefit from or maybe, you know, n- what not to do in a quarantine. No, yeah. no good quarantine stories. That's why quarantine is so terrible. It's Just really frustrating and boring. Me. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it, even though, so I mean, under the terms of the British quarantine, you have actually a number of reasons for which are legal and legitimate to be outside, though in limited numbers, the police have the right to disperse more than gatherings of larger than two people. But despite that, it is um, very, it, it's immediately kind of frustrating and the loss of liberty, at least, you know, I feel the loss of liberty very keenly. Um, even only in taking away the right to be outside. And on top of that, of course, like, because all business, virtually all businesses have closed. So anything that you would wish to do outside, apart from kind of walking around, um, cinemas, cafes, pubs, restaurants, all of those things have closed. So it's um, it's uh, remarkable. And the frustration, I think, is real. And I wonder maybe if one of the consequences of the of all of this will be that the Zoomers perhaps growing up and growing through this and coming of age during this period might feel, might have a keener taste and sense for liberty than millennials. I think Zoom is, has a new meaning now. It's now millennials who use Zoom to have their um, to have their business meetings. But no, I don't think, it, I don't think, <laughs> that was terrible. Um, but I don't think it's really fully hit yet. It's only been a week and a bit. And so the very real loss of liberty i think that hasn't been experienced as such it's still has a novelty i mean these words will come back to haunt me i'm sure in in a fortnight's time um but yeah it still has a has a a feeling of of just basically being um something a bit different and you know we're all we're all working from home now and there's slightly longer queues for fewer products at the supermarket um but yeah i think the the real um the real effect on people's people's political psychology of this of this lockdown is is yet to really be to be fully felt i'm just looking forward to the weird uh out you know that the ennui drives weird violent sexual outbursts uh and then you know people find find new new increasingly obtuse ways to pleasure themselves uh the ballardian revolt the ballardian revolt that's what i'm that's what i'm looking forward to bring on the nihilism uh, yeah, it's, it's an ex, it's an excuse for all the all the nihilistic things that we ever wanted to do yeah. it's for some people. The quarantine, man. I can't. I had to. I had no choice. 
But um, I think for some, for some people, it is a legitimate excuse to cancel all the social obligations that you didn't want to have in the first place. And just to, as I said before, just to spend some, some time tidying out the cupboards in your house and, and doing some filing, which um, will be fun for precisely that one week. That is a real nihilistic then, outburst. <laughs> that's, then, that's how much exactly. self-loathing there is there. You're actually doing some filing. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, right. Let's get started on the book. Um we are going to, first of all, explain what's in the book for those who haven't read it. Uh, and we're, then we're going to go on to unpick a little bit kind of what the main arguments are, talk about what our favorite parts of it are, and also deal with uh, your guys' questions, you being uh, listeners and patrons, because uh, we've got lots of them and there's lots of stuff to unpick and also maybe some critical remarks on, on what the limitations of the book just before we get started, obviously this book is kind of very much, I don't know, what's the expression, in our wheelhouse in terms of what um, the, the kind of themes that it that it has and what it what it really brings, I guess, uh, we can start off by saying is that it, it, it provides a really interesting angle on what the end of history was and specifically that was, they call it, the age of imitation. So I'm not going to say any more because uh, we're going to work through what, what it is. So, I mean, first of all, let's talk about a bit what the approach of the book is. What kind of book is it? It's it's quite essayistic. It's it's not it's not an academic tome. It doesn't have a chapter of methodology. It doesn't have a particularly convoluted framework. Um, so I think that the approach is um, persuasive in the sense of pr presenting some almost kind of psychological profiles of specific nations, and then trying to convince the reader that this explains some some deeper trends and some deeper changes in in world politics. And I mean, it's you know, one thing obviously you can't communicate in this kind of conversation is just it, it is it is fun to read it's funny you know it's 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 got some some interesting observations on on sort of every other page but i think the approach is is not particularly systematic it's trying to present this this framework and, and convince people um that it has some some plausibility so i think i mean i wouldn't i don't think those um you know the lack of a chapter in methodology or the explicit kind of um you know uh, academic armor is a drawback. I think it's a strength. In fact, I think it's a strength. It's clearly pitched at um, readers who are willing to inform themselves or who are or already educated on some of these themes. And it's uh, very thoughtful. I mean, it does, you know, it has weaknesses and weaknesses perhaps in um, the approach and some of the claims it makes. And we'll talk about those in more depth later. But um, I think it's the fact that it's pitched at a wide audience and trying to explain a significant phenomenon of our era um, seems to me to be a strength um, rather than being kind of too bogged down by uh, more scholastic debates or um, overly kind of uh, overly being too narrow in terms of its frame of reference or overly ponderous in terms of needing to name check particular kind of academic debates. All of these things seem to me to be a strength of the book. Yeah, yeah and it's got like basically one big idea, which is about yeah. imitating liberal democracy and then the fact that people stop wanting to imitate liberal democracy. And then it's got a whole range of smaller ideas. I ended up with so many notes just because there's so many, you know, drawn from, from various different places, including from like literature and, and wherever else. Um, but above all, it's a work of political psychology, right? Um, it's yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it basically explains what are the, the kind of psychological processes in nations as a whole or in political elites. And that's something which we have to come on to, <laughs> to p figure out which one it is. Because can you speak yeah. about yeah. A, what a nation as a and whole I, is thinking, yeah. you know? I imagine, I imagine that's kind of, it's maybe a product of um, Crustev and Holmes 
Holmes presumably being the one with the psycho- psychology approach, Krastov having the kind of insights of um, of being a specialist in Eastern Europe, having lived there, grown up there, experienced the end of the Cold War there, all of those things, as well as having the kind of cultural references and um, perhaps uh, more of a feel for the kind of texture and granularity of East European life, both before and after the fall of the war. Yeah, which... I think I think I think they say somewhere that they have um, one author from Eastern Europe, one author author from the West, and this is this is the, the the bridge that they're trying to to build or to cross or to build and then cross. But I think it's it's kind of maybe at this point we can come on to what what's the hook, what's the the way that they they frame it to kind of to to pull the reader in a little bit because I think um, it that, that communicates something of the interest of the book um, because basically the way that they tell this story is about how Pygmalion became Frankenstein. So at the end of the Cold War, hopes for liberal democracy spreading globally were were very high. Um, all the professor of phonetics, i.e. the West, had to do was to, to get this poor Cockney flower girl of the, the uh, kind of Eliza Doolittle of the, the rest of the world, and in particular Eastern Europe, to speak and act proper. Um, and then, the, the you know, the crude piece of marble, um, you know, becomes a great new society in, in the image of the of the creator. But this isn't what happened. Instead, it became um, basically like a, a, a Frankenstein story. So the unnamed scientist of, of that novel is building a, a monster, a Frankenstein's uh, monster, if, if you will, out of miscellaneous body parts kind of cobbled together. And then this turns on on its yeah. creator. So, so for, um, for so for those who aren't feeling of so those for, for those who aren't pretentious assholes, um, I'm going to tell you what the book's about. Um, actually, about that? it's about it's no, about no, the end of history. It's I about just... no, come on, it's about the end of history, basically, right? It's the period of there is no alternative, and the specific political and economic form of that, well, really political form of that, is liberal democracy, right? This is the model everyone's got to imitate it. The U.S. is the main model, and other Western European countries uh, follow in its stead. Um, and it basically, this was uh, this was put to all other countries, especially Eastern Europe and to Russia, um, but really to the whole world, that this is how you've got to become. Um, yeah. And I they found, and they found this... Now, well. ...to have read one play and, and one book. But yeah, this is, this is it, right? That how does liberalism's much-vaunted success at the end of the Cold War turn in on itself, and how does it become a victim of its own success? I mean, that's the that's the the way that they, that they frame it. And it's, you know, it, it's an important story that needs to be told and you know, obviously one that we've we've touched on in a number of different ways in this podcast. And and the psychological angle is specifically that being told to imitate this model is actually humiliating and disempowering because there's no other path yeah. or original path to modernity that you can find. You can't, the, these states weren't allowed to work their way and figure their, their own way out, but they were not only just told you have to imitate, but supervised the whole time. And that felt really humiliating because you feel like you lose your soul or your identity. Um, and then all these different post-communist states, whether Eastern European states or Russia, um, end up kind of rebelling against it, rebel against liberal triumphalism, uh, which results in, you know, the kind of right-wing populism that, that we know so well, you know, across Eastern Europe. It results in Putin. And it even it results in Trump as well, which is, I guess is one of the more kind of surprising or paradoxical bits of the book that the kind of uh, the failure of liberal democracy and the loss of its sheen affects the U.S. as well. The, the you know, the purported victor of the Cold War. The U.S. in some way ends up as the loser of the Cold War. And I guess, question mark. Um, mm. a- any other points about, about the, the broad synopsis, synopsis of the book? I think we can, we'll, we'll come back to that point about 
America because I think it's one of the it's one of the best uh, for, for me one of the the most thought provoking kind of turns of the whole narrative is is how they they set up what imitation means and then kind of turn it on its head as well. And as regards to the structure of the book, um, it goes through, I suppose, setting up the um, beginning with the framework of imitation, running through Eastern Europe as the um, what was the kind of focal point of the Cold War or the division in Europe. Eastern Europe, the land that was um, either lost or emancipated, I suppose, depending on your point of view, whether you're in um, Washington or Moscow, moving through Russia um, in terms of trying to explain the uh, kind of how Russian politics has evolved over the last 20, 30 years or so, and then moving through China, how China's um, responded to the um, end of history and uh, and then also the era of Donald Trump in the States. Um and it's a good structure because it, um, like uh, like George says, it kind of does that thing of setting up a model and then inverting it. But also, I think um, it has a particular, you know, it's got a good range and bringing in across a diverse set of different countries and national frameworks to talk about it. And I've got specific things to say about the insights into Eastern Europe, but I'll keep those for later. Yeah, well, I think we'll 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 go through the the kind of different regions as well um, because they all feel the imitation imperative in different ways, but I think it's maybe worth spelling out what the imitation imperative is. Shall, shall I go ahead? Shall I go ahead with that? I mean, yeah. basically, yeah. The, the and you know, they, they explain this with recourse to various literary and psychological examples um, and resources. Basically, though, it's this, that being told to imitate, that, or rather, the imitation imperative had four components. One, the acknowledged moral superiority of the imitated over the imitators, i.e., the U.S. model is superior to all others, uh, that there's no alternative to this model, that imitation must be total. So, you, you know, you have to imitate the liberal democratic model and structures uh, absolutely without being adapted to local traditions or local needs. And number four, uh, I guess I would call it tutelage, which is basically that the presumption that representatives of, you know, the U.S. or Western states have the right to monitor and evaluate the progress of those other countries. Uh, so, I mean, to summarize it again, it's moral superiority, Tina, or there is no alternative, that imitation must be total, and tutelage. Uh, and that ends up provoking a reaction because um, they, I mean, you know, you're basically, it, it, there's an element of national humiliation to it. And I, I guess we can discuss whether national humiliation is a real thing, but certainly uh, political elites must no doubt feel that those who identify themselves with the nation and then feel that the nation's being humiliated. Um I'm just going to cite one line because I think it captures uh, not just what the imitation imperative is about, but also kind of some of the interesting like little ironic reversals, which uh, like pepper the book. Um, so the imitators uh, pretend to rule themselves while actually being ruled by the West. Right. So, uh, you know, whether it's Kosovo or whatever, um, it's actually the West's in charge. But then the West comes in evaluating the progress of moving towards liberal democracy. And then they accuse, you know, an Eastern European country, hey, you're only going through the motions. You're not really being democratic, which is ironic because that's exactly what they were asked to do. They were those countries were asked to model democracy, not actually really become democratic, um, which I think exemplifies a little bit the tensions and also the ensuing frustrations from being told to you know, you should fake democracy and then being told you're not faking it well enough, basically. Yeah, no, I think I think that's probably for me that the main idea of the whole book is how that idea of the Im imitation imperative and then the age of imitation, which they construct, which is you know, broadly, you know, 1989 to 2016. 
how that's how that's tied to an idea of resentment and this this right to monitor the progress of imitators towards the goal of being like the the, the model the thing that you're trying to imitate that is uh, the, the way that they kind of show that's going to lead to various forms of resentment i think is really is really good and it makes a it makes a lot of sense that you have this model of a society which is imported which is which is then held up and then even the that model has or it, its uh, agents have the right to monitor your progress towards that um is is something which is is bound to generate humiliation resentment a lot of kind of psychological words which they which they bring in it or psychological ideas they bring in in this in this narrative but it it you know it it has some resonance i think i mean so it's uh i suppose i've got mixed feelings about it uh on the one hand i think it's tremendously um uh, how shall I say this? So having a, having a background in Eastern Europe myself, or at least in the former Yugoslavia, um, the it is very difficult to explain the nuances of um, political and social development in that part of the world um, since the fall of the Berlin Wall without reference to some kind of psychology, I think. Um, and the dynamics of resentment, um, bitterness, humiliation, all of those things are intensely real and there is no way to capture them outside of a psychological approach. So I think, you know, that um, the fact that they focused on that as the main approach, I think is, um, you know, unavoidable to some degree, but also limited in some, you know, in some respects as well, which I guess we'll talk more about later in terms of the things that it leaves out of the picture. But the other thing, the other kind of, or the problem, so that's kind of uh, problems with the, the choice that they make in terms of their approach. But internal to the approach itself, there's a problem or at least a tension because they okay, they occasionally ricochet between talking about how, um, you know, the, there's the kind of the aspect of humiliation whereby you renounce your you have to renounce your national heritage or your traditions in order to assimilate into the model. And at another point, they suggest that it's not actually the renunciation of the national uh, model that's the problem. It's rather the humiliation of, or rather it's resentment that comes from being subordinate in the first place. That means that you reach to the national model or you fall back or grab the national model as a way to reassert your identity. So in fact, that the national, so, you know, the argument kind of uh, ricochets between those two claims. And it seems to me the latter claim is much more persuasive. In fact, the national identity is in fact recreated through the process of trying to um, uh, cast off the feeling of humiliation and subordination. So it's not that national identity is so atavistic or strong um, or primordial or deeply rooted in Eastern Europe compared to Western Europe. I don't think that's actually true. Um, and I think that's also, you know, borne out by the evidence. But in fact, that it's reconstituted and reasserted through the process of trying to overthrow the um, humiliation that comes with the process of imitation. Yeah. So it's a secondary nationalism is, in fact, a secondary effect of reacting to the humiliation of imitation. Yeah. And I think I think that that approach would I mean, if you follow that line of argument, it would be in, in the end quite a different sort of book because it would then probably look a lot more at the the cold war and who ended up winning and losing that from in a, in a material 
way what the consequences were going to be. And I guess there's always going to be a limitation of this sort of political psychology, which is kind of individual characteristics writ large on a on a on a nation, because it's it it is quite difficult to ever evidence that and to ever basically and to ever really in a compelling way say, yeah, this is this is the reason why this this geopolitical act or why this state acted in this way, this kind of essentially what is an individual level mechanism, which is what psychology always is going to be. But but it is carried through by actual elites. So I mean, you know, there's a there's the story. Obviously, um, I will come on to this in a bit in a bit more depth. But you know, all the kind of Eastern European dissidents, or many of them, you know, obviously end up being in government. Um, and the but there's also an element of disappointment there. So I, one bit I wanted to highlight: they, uh, the, the the Polish dissident Adam Michnik uh, said that their you know their kind of rallying cry was merely liberty, fraternity, normality. So the idea was that after the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, a country like Poland or the Czech Republic or Hungary or whatever would just become normal like the West, and then they find that normality to be so unfulfilling because it's. Um, there's a kind of a, a feeling of loss of vigor, you know. So they they were these dissidents fighting against uh, fighting against the, the the kind of really existing socialist regimes, and then suddenly find that the the reality of kind of postmodern capitalism is a little bit boring and uh, and uh, a bit destitute. And you know, obviously, lots of people um, have a significant falls in standard of living. And generally, the further east you go in Europe, the worse that fall in standard of living has been. Um, but also just as at a kind of general social level that there's a feeling of lack of meaning, I guess. And so they, the recourse to nationalism, and this kind of ties into Phil's point, is that they have recourse to nationalism as a as a counterweight to the sort of post-nationalism that the EU most of all encourages, but also that the US sort of encouraged as a sort of, you know, this um, this sort of postmodern liberal democracy where basically citizens are nothing but consumers and you just inhabit this democratic space without really being an active citizen or anything having a whole lot of meaning other than just going shopping. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of them end up reacting to and have recourse to nationalism as a means to fill that hole. Yeah, I don't know if it's always necessarily nationalism. I don't know if we, we want to address these points now or, or come back to them later. Um, but I think it, they describe it as an intolerant communitarianism of kind of this central European populists. And that is, I think, the right way to put it, that it isn't so much a, an, a nationalism as a response to that kind of atomite, that kind of Charles Taylor atomism kind of critique of liberalism that basically it's you know people are completely divorced from their their context so actually you bring you bring society bring the community bring the nation back in because it gives people meaning gives people grounding um and that i think that's the right way to framing that it frame it that it isn't it's nationalism second and intolerant communitarianism first yeah yeah i i, I agree with that yeah um, i think that's right and and I think a way of, of maybe explain this through because these um, processes, especially this one of, you know, imitation, resentment, humiliation and so on, uh, play out in very different ways and have different sort of processes, different timelines as well. And whether you're looking at Poland or Hungary or you're looking at Russia and, and you know, indeed the US. So maybe a way to do this is if we all just talk about our favorite bits because um i think each of us has kind of picked different little um sub arguments in the book which uh bring things to light whether it be about putin or about specifically uh you know orban's background or whatever so let, let's go through these
So my my highlight, um, no, the, so my, the bit that I enjoyed the most, partly because I think it it really uh, did make me think a lot, was their idea that Trump's political thought is based around this quite counterintuitive insight that America is the great loser of Americanization. Um, so this idea that, in fact, if you're spreading your view of the <clears throat> way that a society should be structured, essentially, throughout the whole world, that somehow this can end up rebounding on you. So it's the this kind of um, idea then becomes open to Trump that you can make the brand of America great again because people have been imitating it, which has somehow been undermining and and taking away from that that brand or that idea of what it is to be American, which is quite an inversion of this idea of essentially making the whole world American, that kind of particularly post-war idea, or maybe even earlier, that America has the trajectory of what the whole world is going to be. And in fact, no, that's that's not a good thing. You can you can actually make political hay out of out of criticizing um the 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 dynamic or or crit or being critical about the fact that you've been the, the supposed winner everybody's copying you but actually that undermines the your identity that undermines what it is to be american which i didn't see coming and i don't i'm not sure if i entirely agree with but certainly it's thought-provoking yeah i think i you know I, just to build on that or to maybe explain where that comes from I, I, it's interesting that they point out that trump has been hawking this line for a while that he just you know, this idea of a proselytizing America, the shining city on the hill has never been something that Trump is really interested in. He's always just been interested in winning, you know, um, in the US being the best, but not necessarily being this kind of particularly ideological empire. And so Trump kind of seizes this moment when maybe amongst the wider populace, there's a la lack of real belief in America's liberal ideals. And that's why he's able to win. He's able to win the election. He's able to become president because he's able to capitalize on this feeling, um, which has become more widely shared that the kind of American ideal is is tarnished. Yeah, I guess you can't have American exceptionalism if you're not the exception. If everybody is the same as you, you can't win against other people if you're essentially playing the same game. Um, and I think that is an, it is an interesting insight which they they try and say like yeah strip away all of the surface to talk of you know of this kind of um return of to to various kind of older american ideas and yeah this is americanization is bad for america that's a central that's a central claim which i think is is worth taking seriously I, I think we'll explore that a little bit more because I also have some things to say about the US. But um, I, I wanted to highlight um, some things from the earlier chapters, specifically about Eastern Europe. Uh, the main we were just talking about nationalism in Eastern Europe and whether, you know, it's it is indeed a kind of it is nationalism first or whether something else is kind of behind it. And, and nationalism is what uh, political elites, especially the new counter elites that sort of populists in Eastern Europe reach for. Um, and one of the main aspects of you know so-called Eastern European populism is hostility to immigration, which is always widely discussed. Um, it sends liberals into to a terror. Um, I mean, it's obviously a lot. Very, it's despicable the way that they've uh, treated refugees. But then there's something behind this, or it, rather, it needs to be explained. Why have these societies reacted so strongly, especially when they don't have many immigrants, which is often the the discussion, even like within kind of western european nations like those well, not just which... many but i mean uh, you know 
tiny, absolutely yeah. tiny. Yeah. No, I think yeah, you're right. You're right to to to, to correct that. Absolutely tiny numbers. So the argument is that this is tied to Eastern European demographic anxieties. So firstly, what you have is that unlike other successful revolutions, say 1979 in France or 1917 in Russia, uh, the 1989 revolution led to the victors of that revolution, you know, the dissidents, those who succeeded in um, in tearing down the old regime, actually left the country. They all went off to Oxford or wherever else to study, uh, to work elsewhere in think tanks uh, in the US or Western Europe. So that's kind of already kind of perverse. Um, and then in recent years, especially since the 2008 crisis, you've had widespread emigration. Loads of Eastern Europeans, especially uh, the better educated, um, those with the means to do so, have moved elsewhere, have moved to Western Europe or, or North America. Combined with that, you've got really declining birth rates. So that demographic, ang- that anxiety, that's created an anxiety around being, you know, being replaced, right? Everybody knows that, you know, from the US, kind of the alt-right chanting, you will not replace us and so on. Um it happens in Eastern Europe, and it's just, and there it's based on a real sense that those countries are shrinking. Uh, and if you look at some of the figures, are really they're really stark. I think something like B- Bulgaria will lose its twenty five percent of its population by twenty forty or something like that. Um, very serious demographic decline. Everybody knows the story about of, of Russian demographic decline after um, after nineteen ninety one. So. It's that, and it's that insecurity which has prompted such uh, hostility to immigration, especially when immigrants are uh, tend to have higher birth rates and whatever. So it's not to, I'm not trying to kind of justify, and the authors don't try to justify that perspective, but at least they try to sympathetically understand where where that uh, where that has its root. And I guess this ties into a little bit into the, that idea of um, of sort of watery post-nationalism, as the authors call it, which is that these societies are losing their vigor, they're being hollowed out um, in terms of their population, and so they need something to defend their societies, and they reach to nationalism and to build borders to kind of um, fortify the nation um, because they, it's being bottomed out at the, at the same time. It's the point, though, at one point they don't make, I, I think, um, which is made by um, the Hungarian um, philosopher G.M. Tamas, where he says the other point, I mean, the reason that there is the resentment is the fact that the, the immigrants are also competitors. Um, so Arabs, Africans, Afghans, Iraqis, Syrians, all of them are competitors for the kinds of jobs that um, East Europeans need frequently and on which um, uh, families and people, the elderly and the dependents kind of stuck back in Hungary or Poland or Bulgaria um, are dependent on remittances from the people who need those jobs. So I think that's a kind of something they miss, actually, in talking about the resentment. Um, The thing that I liked particularly, and I mentioned this already, um, but I wanted to expand a bit on it, is the political psychology. Um, which they capture. So, I mean, you know, if they just talked in terms of demographics, uh, GDP per capita, um, you know, whether or not the countries joined the European Union or NATO, um, uh, I don't know, income distribution, all of those kinds of broad characterizations, you still wouldn't capture phenomenon, political phenomenon, which are very specific to um, culture and society and politics in the region. And you can only do it with psychology. And so this, I really thought, was... um, you know, like I said, the strength of the book. And it's something which is, uh, like I say, kind of telling from the former Yugoslavia where you've had, you know, um, it's a very peculiar thing to see um, how there's kind of a whole um, stratum of um, professional middle class, the professional middle classes 
who um, build their careers around self-hatred of their own countries and their backwardness and how much they want to um, be a normal country. And normality is a theme that emerges in the book as well. Um, and all the strange dynamics um, and uh, kind of complex and counterintuitive and paradoxical patterns that emerge from that dynamic of imitation, resentment, um, humiliation, uh, all of those things. And it's um, and so I think it their attempt to unpack them, even if not always convincing, I think is, um, you know, uh, it needs to it's well, it's merited. And also it would need to factor into any complete account of politics in the region, in the wider region yeah. as a whole. Um, and I think for that they're to be commended, that they try to capture that kind of peculiar psychology of it. And so, I mean, I know from my own experience, you know, from my own experience from, like I say, the former Yugoslavia, where um, uh, there's this kind of completely, there's the liberal, what's expected of uh, countries in the former Yugoslavia to say, um, uh, accept kind of complete territorial revision to accept the fact that they have to um, be seen as um, effectively, you know, kind of uh, infantile to some degree as they have to kind of learn a process that other people are more mature, more able to um, to master and to know about. And that anyone who has any questions to raise about that um, instinctive assumption of hierarchy must be um, a nationalist must be completely atavistic yeah. and backward and irrational. So, and so I, that yeah. dynamic, they capture that extremely effectively. So I guess there's a, there's a question that flows on from this, which is, you know, how, how convincing we've, we found their account of Orban's, like the making of an ex-liberal is how they, they talk about this and, and his illiberalism as flowing from this particular dynamic and this kind of role of the, the counter elite and specifically this idea that there's a particular resentment in post-communist societies or particularly in, in Hungary at the privatization which happened at that point of, of the transition from communism to post-communism where basically the insiders the the former communists they were the ones who benefited from the corruption and and in Russia for example became extraordinarily rich and it's just interesting how this, I guess, Orban is a good example of of how this kind of resentment um, at being treated a provincial in his case and kind of being treated as an, an outsider to this political class that went from um, being bureaucratically powerful in communist society to being financially very wealthy in post-communist uh, societies, how he kind of illustrates this um, kind of... I guess, resentment at the privileges of the old communist elites who then become associated with liberal democracy in, in that transition period. Yeah. And it's not just resentment at, you know, the, the kind of old nomenclatura who become oligarchs, but it's also resentment at the traditional liberal intelligentsia who are all, um, I don't know, maybe studied in the West and become and are, and are you know, very Western oriented. Um, and in Norban's case, looked down upon him as a sort of provincial rube. I mean, he didn't come, I don't think he necessarily came from a working class background, but from certainly like a kind of a poor provincial village. Um, and I think it's interesting that how many of how many of the kind of new style populists, you know, that have emerged in the past decade, often have that kind of 
either that personal background or certainly speak to that sort of base, you know, the kind of, of the provincial petty bourgeoisie, I guess, and that sort of resentment that it's not, um, that it's obviously not like a kind of working class resentment and feeling of, um, you know, feeling of, of economic, uh, of, uh, you know, of, of kind of being downwardly mobile economically or, or being exploited, but often of just being of loss of status, I think, in, in many cases. Um, so yeah, it seems to be it's common, you know, with Erdogan as well with Kaczynski, um, and I, I guess maybe they're able to trend, you know, them as becoming this kind of counter lead in the case of Orban or Kaczynski, mm-hmm. they're able to bring along their people because they can identify a certain resentment there, you know, his per, his biographical, his own personal resentment at being looked down upon by the, you know, the liberal intelligentsia, something that is shared, albeit in a different sense, by the broader mass mm-hmm. of people. Yeah, I guess that that distance between the political elites and the and the, the people, which is obviously one of the the key, I guess the key sources or the key tensions that powers populism is. I just think it, it's quite an interesting inflection that they give that in in certain um, in yeah, particularly in in the in the narrative of of, of Orban. I wanted to highlight one thing about Russia, which uh, we haven't maybe talked about enough directly. Uh, and what Putin is specific, specifically Putin, I mean, especially Putin being such an important and powerful figure, much more powerful than the, than the, I think ones in, in their respective countries in Eastern Europe that we've discussed. Um, it's worth kind of talking about the psychology there. He, the, 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 the authors basically argue that you've got three phases in Russia. First, the 1990s, where they fake liberal democracy, you know, for the West. The 2000s, where Putin kind of stabilizes things and, you know, inaugurates managed democracy. And then the 2010s, where Putin engages in a violent parody of the West to expose Western weakness and hypocrisy. Um, I found this really fascinating. Um mm-hmm. That basically what Putin tries to do, especially in his foreign policy, in his posturing, in his discourse, um, is to is what you know would would be traditionally con- uh, considered within like Marxism ideology critique, which is basically to unmask the ideas of the West and show them that they're mere masks for self interest. Uh, so when the U.S. talks about you know liberalism or democracy or human rights, really uh, it's just a cover for their own self interest. Okay, everybody's familiar with this. Uh, it, the most vulgar leftist anywhere in the world knows this and has you know made these arguments themselves. But Trump, but excuse me, but Putin doesn't do this in the service of emancipation of saying no. But we need true liberalism or true democracy or whatever. Really, it's just to demoralize the West to go. You've humiliated us in Russia. And you are encroaching, you know, in our in our space, NATO's expanding eastwards, despite having promised not to. And so the, the only thing I can do in my defense, because my position is relatively weak, is to try to take you down and to humiliate you or to point out your hypocrisy as much as possible. Um, so that's fascinating in its own right. And I think is very a very accurate depiction of, of Putin's modus operandi. But also it, it works domestically, because what... Um, Putin was doing in terms of the kind of the faked democracy at home was, and this for me is the best line of the whole book, what managed democracy, so what managed democracy stimulated, in other words, was not democracy, but management. So what Putin was trying to do was not to try to make it look like it was a real democracy. 
Everybody knows, knows that it's fake. Everybody knows that the elections are rigged, that Putin's really in charge. In fact, what Putin's trying to demonstrate is, in fact, that he's really in charge. Because yeah. the oligarchs have sucked up all the resources in Russia, because his position's weak, because his position is dependent on uh, oil prices and, and energy, hydrocarbon prices being high, and when they aren't, uh, you know, the ruble weakens significantly and, and Putin's position is weak— um, He's in a very defensive position. So all he can do is put on a show of power. And rigging elections, actually, ironically, is not to show that he's a Democrat, but it's to show that he's actually in power and to convince the Russian people, one, that there's no alternative, that it's just him. And two, if you go for anything else, you'll have weakness. You'll have uh, the, Russia will be dismembered even further than the USSR already was. So you've basically got to stuck with, stick with me because I'm the only guy with any sort of authority here. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. And I think that kind of the... Um, there so well i was gonna i mean i agree with the that some of the strongest part of the book are, are portraying the potemkin character of putin's authoritarianism um and also the the way in which so much of um putinite foreign policy in particular is effectively trolling um so the west kind of uh, the west uh, detaches kosovo from serbia recognizes it as an independent state and putin says okay now we're going to um we're going to do that with south ossetia and abkhazia mm. you did it we're going to do it and even they even the kind of the legal documents that justify the secession and recognition of those two um statelets is ref references the same documents that I discussed, the ICJ documents discussed with reference to Kosovo. Um, you know, Russia, uh, America goes into Iraq um, and Russia says, OK, we're going to go into Syria and we're going to defend the, in, but the kind of mirror image. We're going to defend the Syrian regime. We're going to destroy terrorism there. We're going to um, protect kind of an, uh, a multi-confessional state. We're going to defend the sovereignty of the Syrian people, blah, blah, blah. And so I think that's all very accurate. The thing where I think it's slightly, um, well, the other thing that's good as well is I think um, is Putin as an end of history figure. So this I think is particularly overlooked, um, maybe outside of uh, outside of Russia, is you know I mean so now we're you know everyone kind of is codding on to the idea that we're living through the end of the end of history. Everybody accepts basically the Alpha Bunga Bunga point, and we're hegemonic in that that we're living through the end of the end of history. <laughs> And usually Putin is cast. Putin is cast. We as said one it of first. Of, we we said it first. We did. And usually Putin is cast as one of the kind of architects of this. Um, the person who's uh, helping to erode the liberal democratic order, helping to um, forestall democratization in Eastern Europe um, and in Russia. So seen as the kind of um, the subversive of the of the of that order, when in fact he's very much part of it. And this they make. Um, Krastev and Holmes make this very clear, that all of uh, Putin's authority is constructed on showing the absence of alternatives. So just as much as Angela Merkel proclaims um, her policies as being alternative laws, there is alternative less, literally meaning alternative less. So that's the same pitch that Putin makes, um, showing that there is no alternative to his regime. And so he's also very much, and I thought that's very, it's something to bear in mind with Putin, that he's also very much part of that complex. His authority is based on the idea that there is no alternative to yeah. it. And ironically, because he's not a he's not a liberal Democrat, and it's supposedly the old yeah, there's absolutely. No liberal democracy. He's supposed to be, the but he's defined by his opposition to it, yeah. and therefore he's also part of that whole complex to that extent as well. 
I just wanted to highlight, um, before we go any further, one comparison between Trump and Putin, which I thought was really interesting, and I had never considered it in this sense. Um, and it's not Trump is similar to Putin because they're both authoritarians, because they're both for, far right, because they're both extreme nationalists. None of that. In fact, it's just because both of their modus operandi is kind of similar. Both uh, want to unmask ideological pretensions. Trump's game is basically the end of American exceptionalism. He wants the U.S. just to be a normal nationalist power who looks after number one. Um, and I like this bit where they say, you know, America first doesn't mean America uberalis. It means America in first place, just America winning. <laughs> uh, and that's and that's Trump's game. He sees things in, tra- in very transactional senses, uh, winners and losers at each deal. And he just wants to come out on top of that deal. In doing so, he needs to talk. He needs to basically Basically, and I think this is a great way the authors put it, a world without hypocrisy, right? So American power over the second, you know, through the 20th century has been all these high-flown ideals um, rarely lived up to and a lot of hypocrisy. What Trump's doing is saying, well, let's get rid of all the ideals and now there's not going to be any more hypocrisy. Putin, as well, is kind of trying to unmask all of the American kind of bullshit, all you know, effectively Americanism and say, well, this is all hypocritical. Really, we just live in a world of power and of cynical power and of looking after your own nation state and nation state's self-interest. Um, so let me do that. Stop lecturing me. So what they combine to create is a world with, without hypocrisy, but it's actually a very cynical world because no ideals are really to, to be believed. It's it's kind of the end of any pretense. Uh, and that- Yeah, I, I, I think this is such an interesting point, the, like one way to put it, that Trump Trump is sincere but not accurate, I think, is, is yeah. you know, that's, and that's, that's such an interesting idea that actually. Explain that, is, explain that out, like, beca- explain that out, because the authors take some time to explain what, what the difference is between yeah. sincerity and accuracy. He, it, so the idea is he, he, he lies, but he's transparent about his intentions. And you compare Trump then to Hillary Clinton. Um, and so if, if uh, listeners might, might remember the, the really interesting interview that we had with Jennifer Silver, about so her ethnographic study suggested that that there is there is a reason to prefer President Dickhead over President Sellout. There is a reason to prefer a candidate who is who lies based transparent about their intentions rather than somebody who tells the truth in inverted commas but but hides their intentions. And it's I just think it's 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 a very it's a really interesting way to frame Trump's whole project, which is is has a weird sort of sincerity um, to it combined and, 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 with, and, a, with a factual inaccuracy. And this is exactly why the U.S. Democrats, more than any other party or faction in the Western world, has most bought into the Russiagate stuff because they're the most ideological fraction. They're the ones who most believe in Americanism in all this bullshit. And therefore, Putin's attempt to unmask this and say that, uh, you know, your claims to democracy and liberalism are hollow because you don't actually practice them. Uh, This is a world of cynical power and you operate just like anybody else, except uh, unlike you, I don't have any pretenses about it. Um, That's why they bought into the Russiagate so much, because although Russia did interfere to to some extent in in U.S. elections, I think the, the U.S. Democrats are the most wedded to a pretense of um, you know, of kind of these high-flown ideals of still being a city on a hill. And that's why they not only buy into the Russiagate more than anything else, but why they are the most, the biggest sufferers of, of knobs, of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome. Yeah, agree.
right. So uh, let's move on to Patreon questions, or do we want to discuss the what this means for the future of liberalism? Because that was what we had done on the agenda. Um, move on to Patreon questions. I think. Yeah, I think so. I okay. think give give I think give the people a voice. Get, you know, I'm all for yeah, empowering. We're Democrats here. I think I think as long as once we've kind of made sure that we filtered out the questions we don't like, that we've uh, made <laughs> the people pay to participate in the debate, that then that then we're willing this to is, that then we agree to take questions. This from is the a managed this is a managed democracy. It's not a fake <laughs> democracy, but to show that we're in uh, charge. Uh, Shit, I was just, I was just about to say exactly the same thing. Managed yeah. democracy, emphasis on the management. Yeah. So we've pre-selected some questions that we think <laughs> are representative that we would like to answer, and we will give our our, our corporate line to yeah. this question. No, no. So thanks, thanks very much, uh, everyone who sent in questions. We got quite a lot of them. Um, in some cases, we sort of condensed them. Um, not all of you wanted to be named, but uh, Gabriel Goffman and uh, John Kennedy did. So hi, guys. Thanks for your questions. And thanks to those who uh, wish to remain unnamed with their questions. Um, we're going to try to run through these and, and offer uh, comments on them. So let's start with uh, let's start with the one that's at the top here. Um, one is that uh, so it seems that the logic between Putin's rise and those of others as well was a sense of grievance, often justified, but then mainly used to maintain power. The logic behind their political domination is in many ways not materialistic. While Russia may have improved since the fall of the Soviet Union, its economic growth has been pretty bad. Um, so doesn't this conflict with the idea of materialism as the main political force? So b- basically, um, I, get, I guess this is about trying to balance uh, you know, economic motives behind Putin's rule and the the idea about grievance and the idea about humiliation uh, being made to imitate and so on. Uh, so what do we think about this? You know, are those psychological yeah. factors more important or are economic factors more important? I guess when you, when you put that gloss on it, is it is psychological or economic factors more important? Obviously the latter. But I think what, what really this question made me think was, if you have a psychological process which is about grievance, how long does that last? How long can you have a political project that's based on that kind of mechanism of, even if justified, of of being aggrieved by the previous rulers or by a previous set of circumstances? If, for example, Putin has been in power for almost two decades, for two decades pretty much, like how how can you still be aggrieved if you've had 20 ish years of being able to 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 control politics i think that's that's an interesting question quite so and how does grievance continue in the era of donald trump um you know i mean how does uh, if the regime bases its authority on trolling the west um you know how does that continue when it's not Hillary Clinton in charge? The other thing I think. And why I mean, do you care as limit... an ordinary Russian? You know, like why why, yeah, why do you well, care quite. that Putin is able to successfully poke fun at the US or you know? Like... So I mean, you know, it's a hard ask, I guess, because I do, you know, I'm I do want to defend the approach of political psychology, like I've mentioned several times that it's I think it's simply unavoidable to account for the kind of nuances and complexity. Of political of political responses, particularly in Europe, but at the same time, you know um, what um, Gabo what Gabo said is right. Um, you know these are kind of history. These are um, countries that have been kind of economically peripheral. Um, many um, were you know kind of uh, they come from or they're 
kind of economic and sociological and demographic backgrounds are um, rural, aristocratic. They lose their aristocracies in the processes of war and revolution and conquest and annexation and dismemberment over the course of the 20th century. Um, during the Cold War, they're kind of uh, forced, they're kind of um, forced march through a process of urbanization and industrialization, which is locked into the Soviet orbit and so has all the kind of limitations um, that come with that, not to mention um, you know the lack of um, lack of freedom, democracy, and political choice, and so on, and military occupation in some cases. Um, so all of that, I think, is um, it's hard to it's a tremendous ask to try and combine the kind of the subtleties of political psychology with um, the the you know the history and sociology and economics, which are um, you know doubtless important. Um, I suppose you know. I suppose the only the only thing to um, the only thing to add to it would be to say that the um, one thing I think they leave out with respect to the political psychology, and um, which I think is kind of maybe combined, which would be an opportunity for them to combine both approaches, is the psychology of those who've emigrated. So when they talk about the sense of grievance and humiliation and kind of anti-immigrant sentiment, they're talking about the left behind, basically, the populations, the kind of rump populations in these states that are experiencing demographic collapse. But what about the people who've moved out? You know, so the people who are living in London or in Paris, um, Bulgarians, Poles, um, Hungarians who are um, either working class or middle class professionals um, and who might go back to Poland or might visit their relatives or whose kids might grow up in, um, you know, kind of in, uh, I don't know, multi-ethnic schools in inner city London. Um, what will they think about the politics and history of their home countries? Yeah. And I'm not sure that they'll be, you know, necessarily so resentful or imitative or feeling humiliated as the left behind in the countries themselves. And that when they go back, you know, they might support gay marriage or they might be more relaxed about it. They might be much more liberal in their attitudes and their concern, their political concerns might look very different from those of their um, cousins and parents and grandparents who stayed behind. I think that's really interesting. Um, I, I just wanted maybe to try to make an attempt at this kind of, you know, how how does this idea of, of grievance or the political psychology of, of an elite, especially of Putin, how does that conflict with the idea of materialism, right, as the, you know, the, or a materialist interpretation? Um, I, I mean, I don't know if they're that conflicted. I think, you know, basically, when you're talking about states, uh, you know, under a materialist approach, you're talking about two things, accumulation and legitimation. Right. So it's about can a state provide uh, a stable environment for people to accumulate capital, especially, you know, basically to do business and make money. And on the other hand, legitimation. Uh, can the state does the state have the authority uh, to rule over its people and to do that legitimately? Um, and, you know, accumulation was kind of taken care of just because all the money, all the, you know, all, all the resources went to the oligarchs and Putin kind of existed sort of uneasily with them, trying to rein them in, but also realizing um, that he couldn't just completely clamp down on them. I mean, he ended up locking up Michael Khodorkovsky, uh, who eventually ended up going to exile. But, you know, that was an uneasy relationship. And it was dependent on oil. And as the, you know, as the oil prices dropped and after the global financial crisis and, you know, the fall of the ruble and everything else, Putin ends up in a much more precarious position. So, you know, what what does he do for legitimation? And I think what the argument of the book seems to be is that it's precisely always going back to the well, right? He's going back to the well of grievance um, as, as a way of, of uh, as providing legitimation for the Russian state with 
with a kind of recognition of, of cynicism uh, or cynicism as, as a really important thing that basically there is no alternative, there is no other possibility. And so me kind of, kind of say, not even saber rattling, but me trying to unmask the bullshit of the West um, is the best that you can hope for. Um, and so, you know, I think so. the kind of follow on question that, that uh, Gabriel asks is, um, is, is, you know, uh, how long can this last? How long can, you know, is Putin forever? How long can he, you know, mobilize that sense of grievance uh, to, 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 to bolster his regime? And I guess, I guess the answer to that is, you know, surely not much longer, especially if he can't, if, if living standards are, you know, really under threat in Russia um, and, uh, you know, and, and the historical memory of, uh, of this humiliation is, you know, starts to fade after a while. And, and you know, generations who live through it start to die off and so on. Guys, any any thoughts on that? I mean, it's 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 always <clears throat> a mug's game to predict to predict the future. But yeah, I think that's that's the central contradiction: the feeling like Putin is forever, but the <laughs> increasing um, collection of material factors which suggest that there must be a limit. Um, I guess the yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting. I mean, as I said at, at the top of this question, the if if their analysis is correct and that it is a grievance driven kind of project then surely it should have run out of steam already so maybe there is a a kind of a limitation to to what they're saying or there are other parts in addition to what they're saying which explain putin's rise and putin's power because otherwise it would well, surely I mean, have run out of steam by now in western countries we've been dealing or we were dealing for ages until around 2016 going why how the hell do these elites still remain in power because they're not really providing anything and they kind of treat their people like shit uh and yet this kind of tina rules and it seemed like it would go on forever right we, we've discussed this on the podcast so much you know that over the 90s and 2000s it seemed like that period would just carry on forever and that there would never be any politics again uh and then suddenly there were so i guess you know russia and you know putin as a figure of the end of history you know russia will have its moment as well I, you can only <laughs> you can only imagine right yeah, world history will will go back to Russia at some point. Yeah, yeah. Um... yeah. So let's move on to to another question, um, which is a little bit more of a philosophical one, um, and it's um, it might be a bit of a, a struggle. But so one person asks, uh, one of you guys who are listening, hopefully, um, if anybody, you know, so uh, sorry, wait, let me let me take that from the top. Um, it's about the psychological mechanism of imitation. So if anybody can become me, then then who am I? Um, how, how, you know, at an individual level, um, imitation becomes a threat to, to your own identity. If anybody can be you, can become you, then how are you, then what makes you really you? Um, so, um, so does that mean you have recourse to, you know, for example, racial or cultural characteristics to identify what is truly authentic about yourself? Um, and so, at a socio, at a, at a in a political setting, at at a kind of a at a much larger level of the nation, um, could it result in a radical, new, more radical identity? And I, I mean, I'm trying to parse exactly what the meaning of this is. I guess it's in the case of the United States, especially, or other Western countries who are those who are being imitated. How do they how do they respond to to being imitated? Do they reach for something else to find some identity? Yeah, I mean, this it's, it's a good question, very thought-provoking, and it makes me think of Kanye, actually. I mean, the idea of if anybody can become me, then who am I? I can imagine him him kind of pondering this question, watching Fitzcarraldo on repeat in his in his house. This is apparently what he does have programmed on a big screen in his house. But, like, if, if you are 
if you are a somebody who's in fact encouraging people to um, adopt your identity, if you have a clothing brand, for example, or in a, in this the, the context of this book, if you're American and you're trying to encourage people to assume an identity closer to your own, then you're bringing about a, a potential threat to an identity willingly. You're saying to people, like you know, act in the same way politically, economically that we do, or or dress in the same same way that that, that I do. And I think it's an it's an interesting kind of idea because it does it does lead to a questioning of the identity um, of of the um, initiator of the person who's who's wanting other people to imitate them. Um, I don't really have an a, a, an answer to a philosophical question. I don't think you're ever supposed to answer philosophical questions. You're supposed <laughs> to think about them. So waffle, in some ways, that's an easy. Yeah, exactly. It waffle until people think that there's another important question to. Um, to address but yeah i mean i guess that that is the question could, well, could it could it result in a new more radical identity well mm, I, I i i don't know i mean it, it, it's always a question it, the extent I, I, to which gonna, identity can be radical in, in and of itself so i wanted to i wanted to take take uh maybe well one question the premise of it because one premise of the question because the whole point is that no one's trying to imitate liberal democracy anymore right uh, there are those who who are long-established liberal democracies who's are kind of under the are facing various strains, uh, and then those who aren't, we've just abandoned the pretense, right? Uh, like or Victor Orban says, you know, we're not, uh, you know, the, we're the true Europe now. We're the ones defending true Europe, and uh, and it's the kind of post-national, post-modern, decadent uh, West Europeans who've abandoned what Europe is meant to be and whatever. And obviously that has like various kind of racist connotations and whatnot. Um, but the point is, is that the imitation game's over. So maybe this question isn't isn't really a, 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 a present problem anymore, um, the question of identity. And I think the other thing, I guess, and I, we didn't talk about Germany, and there's a nice bit about Germany in the book. Uh, Germany, the argument taken from Thomas Bagger in the book is that Germany is the most end of history country because it's the one who's most abandoned. You know, basically, it has it can't re- have recourse to its to its past to find an identity because you know Nazis, um, or in the case of Eastern East Germany, uh, Stalinism. So you know, it can't reach for the past, and it can't really try to chart a new future because you know Germany can't be let off the leash to do anything because it might go fascist again, uh, and therefore it just needs to live in an eternal present of a kind of you know, post-national uh, individualism and just go around teaching other countries, hey, you can become post-national Europeans like us too. Um, and, you know, Germany has been able to carry on like that for a while. Um, and I think maybe we've said on, on this podcast before, it's going to reach its end of the end of history moment too at some point soon, one would imagine, um, where that no longer seems, you know, or feels substantial enough as a as a sort of national identity or even a kind of, a story that you tell about yourself, you know, as, as a nation, about who who you are and where you're going. I I don't really understand your point. Well, I mean, so the, the the point is that you know what what do you do about a country which has been denied any sort of national identity in the case of Germany, right? Where it's a kind of it doesn't have you know the nation is a is is a tying supposedly you know is a tying together of past generations with the future generations in a kind of coherent story about itself and germany's not been allowed to do that it's not been allowed to have a, to have recourse to the past and it's not allowed to have a recourse to, to to any sort of idea of what a what a future germany is other than a kind of weak post-national identity um 
so I guess that that kind of is the is ties into the point really that that's been asked in the question, which is you know what what, how, what do you do when when your identity is so samey as to not be mean anything at all? Yeah, it it is a genuinely good question, and it's so hard to imagine that um, that the Germans could meaningfully say return to some kind of nationalism um, that you know as that the ruling the German ruling class could attempt to cohere or legitimate some new kind of, um, you know, or not even nationalism. I mean, anything that isn't what they have at the moment is so hard to envisage what it might look like, um, that it would be coherent or viable for um, what Germany is today. It's um, it's difficult to imagine. I suppose, I mean, I could see the rise of a German Euroscepticism that wasn't nationalistic, or at least was nationalistic in the kind of, um, in, a po- in a populist way. Um, but genuinely, it's hard to see. And obviously, all of this is conditioned by the corona pandemic as well. Um, what will happen to not only in terms of the immediate responses of governments, but how it affects people's sense of uh, political belonging and political identity, how that um, yeah. how countries respond and how 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 citizens and populations relate to each other as part of the response as well. Um, so I suppose. You know, we might. I suppose we might see the answer sooner than we think, but it's very hard to get a sense of what it might look like. Very good. Um, let's. We've got two more questions. Uh, one which actually ties into the coronavirus uh, thing. So we're going to finish with that. Um, the coronavirus thing. You know that thing. That old thing. Um, right. So what thing? People <laughs> probably know. haven't heard of that. You might yeah. need to explain. You might. What that is. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty alternative. It's. Uh, you might not have heard of heard of it yet, but um. I was into the early stuff. Uh, we were actually into the early stuff. We come out with a, an episode on coronavirus <laughs> in February. So, you know. Uh, <laughs> we were into it before it was cool. Some yeah. of the early B-sides. Yeah, I'm not actually sure what we said to... on, the, on that episode and whether we, we could still stand by it. But um, no, there was some very good stuff about China and the way that, uh, um, you know, China is structured. Um, so, you know, go listen to it, people. Let us know what you think. Right. Um penultimate question was, uh, I think Krastev and Holmes are probably right on the desire of East Europeans to mimic the West. At least I vividly remember this dire- desire in 1991 USSR. I was a teenager back then. Uh, does this disappointment with the West mean that the utopian pre- promise of liberalism is spent? That's a, that's a hefty one. It's um, to, yeah, it's yes. a really good question. The and, answer is yes. Um, it's, it's a simple answer. The no, it depends what you mean, promise- though. It depends what you mean. I suppose the the answer would be it depends what you mean by liberalism, and I'm not sure that it is because I think there will be you know there it will it will be um, uh, a lost cause for some the way it is like and in fact I think the lost cause makes its own utopia um, that much more alluring. It becomes a kind of um, something we missed out on you know that we could have done better, um, a path not taken for a lot of people that will be I think the way that it will be experienced not maybe the majority and but certainly um, uh, you know influential um, influential minorities liberal middle classes and various kind of cultural and political elites I think will um, will see this kind of um, we'll see the period that we're exiting as um, and some already say this openly. Um, see, as the high, literally, as the high peak of human development, 
um, people who are very hard nosed and pragmatic and kind of empirically minded and um, without any um, of the kind of philosophical pretension or um, uh, grandiosity and pomposity of a Fukuyama, they will nonetheless maintain that the period, you know, the kind of the pe- the post Cold War liberalism was the greatest period of human history in terms of its prosperity and general freedom. Which so I think clear, a lot of people social will... democracy, right? As well, I mean, it's it, you know one specific aspect of that is would be social democracy. Right. So it, well, sure. I mean, the kind of uh, yeah, centrist social democracy, you know, I mean, I don't think they're very discriminating with respect to um, uh, the politics of it. But speaking, you know, I think anyway, my point is, I don't think it's spent. I think there will be a, a large, you know, there'll be a large group who will look back on it with nostalgia and will hold it up as a, an ideal that we should try to recapture and rebuild. Um, and I think also, you know, for some, say, neoliberals, and it's a point I've made elsewhere, uh, there will still be the idea that um, neoliberalism has never been properly tried. It's been thwarted or it succumbed to kind of unexpected conditions. All the, in fact, all the kind of um, kind of the, the stereotypical arguments that the left has come up with to explain the failure of communism will effectively be deployed by neoliberals to explain away the failure of neoliberalism in the last 30 years. So I don't think it's been spent. I think its defeat, in fact, will perhaps um, give it a give it a sheen of um historic glamour and tragedy and that okay. that will be an alluring utopian promise for some okay to, to a certain extent i agree that it's like there will be so that utopian like never tried never really falsified if only we'd had different people in power like the neoliberals might well say that but i think that idea of the or at least the way i interpreted the question was not about a smaller group of people and i think when you said nostalgia that was exactly what i was was going to say and i think that's completely correct there will be a small group of people who will be nostalgic for this kind of end of history liberalism maybe it's the 2012 olympics maybe there's another kind of peak of of human endeavor and there will be a small group of people who will look back on on that time period and and think if only that had been generalized and really really put into into play but i do think taking a step back there's going to be a real question in the next few years who are the who are the liberals or who are the neoliberals who are the people who are defending this um this method of of government this kind of economic and political system because i think it they're going to be few and far between so if if, if utopian promise is meant in the sense of driving a political vision forward I don't I think that I think liberalism is a busted flush at, at this point. I mean, there will be, you know, surely it will come back in mm. in a decade. But it's really it's really not going through a period of, of immense strength when, for example, you know, the, the <laughs> large proportion, large sections of the world economy have been have been nationalized. And, and people don't think that the free market can really solve any of our problems at this point in time. I mean, I, I kind of agree with George, at least liberalism as it exists now, uh, it has no future whatsoever, whether that's in the form of, you know, free market neoliberalism, or whether it's uh, the kind of left liberalism, postmodern left liberalism that we know um, today, I think those are done. But it's interesting that the, the authors deal with this at the very end of the book, right? And I'm, I'm going to just quote from it because I've got it in front of me. Um, we can endlessly mourn the globally dominant liberal order that we have lost. Or we can celebrate our return to a world of perpetually jousting 
political alternatives. Realizing that it uh, chastised liberalism, having recovered from its unrealistic and self-defeating aspirations to global hegemony, remains the political idea most at home in the 21st century. Okay, so basically, I mean, I would interpret that as basically you can either choose knobs or you can choose struggle. <laughs> um, so it, basically, liberalism can either abandon, you know, stop either can choose hysteria and trying to claw back what's been lost, in which case it will definitely lose, or it can learn, it can abandon all the kind of uh, self-importance and, and um, self-aggrandizing things it told about itself and learn to fight again, to go back and to fight for individual liberties, uh, to fight for democracy, to fight for pluralism, for tolerance and all these things kind of from the ground up. And if it does that, then maybe maybe it does have have a future. Um, I guess there's a question about whether the, there's a which is up which touches to what uh, George just said. You know, does it have a social base? Basically, middle classes, which were the home of liberalism, um, are under a lot of strain. You know, in in some cases, are being proletarianized. So, you know, is there a home for liberalism? I mean, you know, why not socialism then? Literally, we have no uh, answer to that because why not? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> why not? All right, that's been this reading club on the light that failed. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, we've hope. Maybe you had a chance to read the book beforehand. If you haven't, uh, I, I don't think this spoils the book at all. It's still really worth reading. And I think uh, we've been clear on, on our admiration for, for the book. Uh, I think it, it does tussle with a lot of important questions. Uh, let us know what you think Any in any case. Um, tell your friends also if they'd be interested. And we do plan to do more of these and hopefully with a little bit more frequency than we've been doing so far. And in order to do that, we're probably going to choose shorter books and probably long essays in many cases, which also give you a chance uh you guys listeners to uh have a read through before we actually discuss it and send in questions and make this all really nice and interactive um albeit at a distance so we don't infect each other okay take care of each other bye bye